0: If you have a Bible, if I can encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 3, and if you want to use the Bible in front of you, if you want to pay, turn to page 202, and that's where we'll be this morning. You know, as we continue our studies through Judges, it probably does bear repeating that there are stories in the book of Judges that are negative, they're not really that pleasant. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, as we move through the narrative accounts in the book of Judges, they're going to get bleaker and bleaker as we go along. We kind of wasn't ideal in the first little bit already, but it's going to get bleaker as we move. And that causes some challenge. It's just like these are negative accounts, and yet in the negative accounts, we can very much get positive applications. There's a sense in which through the stories, through the narratives of All these negative things happening we can see through their failures we can actually be pointed to the freedom that we have in Christ to what he offers us one of the things I want us to understand not just from judges but more broadly through the entire bible is that when a person repents of his or her sin and trust the Lord Jesus alone as Savior. That person literally is invited by God, taken from God, from a life in bondage to sin, or you could say a life of failure, and God invites us literally to a life of freedom. That's huge. I want us to remember that. I want that to kind of carry you through this entire series of judges. He's inviting us to freedom. Now, as we pick up This morning, we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. There's a sense in which we're really moving into the heart of the book. Okay, what we've looked at so far in Judges 1 and Judges 2 and a little bit into Judges 3 was sort of laying out an introduction. It's kind of the way the book was written, kind of lays out the introduction. But now we enter into the heart of the book. And we're actually going to look at the account of three good Judges. And really what those judges, in a sense, are trying to do is to take people who God has already rescued from bondage to failure and invited to freedom, these people keep going back to failure. And so he's going to keep the judges, God's going to use the judges to call them to a life of freedom. In essence, God is going to use the judges to call these people to join God in the mission God has for them. He wants them to live a life of freedom, and that is a life of mission maybe just to back up for a second and remind ourselves of something. The people that Judges was written to, the the people of Israel, had been given by God a mission, something they were to carry out and do. We find that in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, when God is speaking to Moses up on Mount Sinai, right before the Ten Commandments are given, and God says these words to Moses. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, notice this, we saying these words, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And when we talk about the mission of God, I really do want you to focus in on those words of kingdom of priests. God was calling the people of Israel, the people that really the book of Judges was written to, he's saying you are to be basically mediators of God's grace to the people around them. There's a sense in which literally God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, And he put them in the promised land, and he put them there in part to call them to serve him and to literally put on display and to express, proclaim, demonstrate all in all those ways the grace of God to the rest of the world. They were to do this very special thing. They were to be conduits of his grace. Now chronologically, a lot of time has passed since Exodus 19, in Judges 2, 1, 2, and 3, a lot of time has passed, and that was to the nation of Israel. But since those words are repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we kind of get the sense, you know what? We've been given the same invitation. God is inviting us to be conduits of grace. God is inviting us to proclaim his beauty and grace to the world around us, which really raises the question, can we really do that? Can you and I do the mission of God that he's inviting us to be a part of? That's really what I want us to talk about this morning through Judges 3. And really, to answer that question, can you and I really do what God's calling us to do through Judges 3, through the three stories in Judges 3? I want us to talk about what God can do and how God can use us. Because I think when we realize what God can do and how God can use us. The answer to the question is can we really be conduits of God's grace? Can we really be in mission with Him? The answer to that question is yes, because of what God can do and how God can use us. So let's jump into Joshua 3 and start with the first account, the first judge, and look at what is it that God can do. So, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, we talked last week, there's a pattern. You're going to see that pattern played out very much in this first account. So the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, uh, I practiced and practiced this. rish king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan rish eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenza, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave him kushath rish king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over cushan rish So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenza, died now, again, there's that pattern we're going to see again and again and again. The people are going to disobey. God's going to have to deal with it. They're going to cry. God's going to provide a deliverer. God's going to redeem them. There's going to be good things, and it happens again and again. We're going to see that. But through that pattern in this first story, what I want us to see is two truths about God that tell us about what God does, okay? Two truths about God that tell us this is what God does, Truth number one about God, I want us to see this morning, is God corrects rebellion. God can correct rebellion. Look at verse 7 with me. The verse really is a simple description. The people disregarded God. That's what it means by the people forgot God. That's the idea. And when they forgot God, what they did is they turned to stone and wood, okay? Okay. Asherah and Baal and Asherah. Baal would have been a stone. Asherah would have been wood. Very gross. We won't get into that. We'll get into some of that later as we go through the book of Judges. But they turn there. They forget God. Now, there's a whole lot more we need to get to. But because this is brought up right in verse 7, and it's going to be repeated a number of times, we probably need to deal with there's an implication right away, right smack in verse 7. See, the people of Israel forgot God. Which means you and I need to ask the question could you and I do the exact same thing? Could you and I forget God? Maybe a good question to ask, and it's going to be a hot afternoon, so I don't know what you're planning to do. You're probably going to try to find someplace cool to be. So when you're sitting someplace cool, maybe the question you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, is what kinds of things am I doing in my life? to keep me or to help me remember God and not forget him. What kinds of practices, what kinds of things do I do to keep myself from forgetting God? You know, some people will talk about what we call spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines. And really what those largely are, are, they are practices, they are habitual things you and I can do to help us keep God in focus, to help us remember God, to focus on Him. Because folks, we need to understand, through the book of Judges, we're going to see it again and again and again, forgetting and disregarding God never produces good things. Ever. So how do you and I keep remembering God and not disregarding him? Now, there's more to the narrative, so go back and look at verses 8 and 9. That's where verse 7 takes us, but verses 8 and 9. Because they forgot God, because they disregarded him, God acted. And clearly, God's actions started, according to verse 8, because of the anger, his anger. Now, we probably need to unpack what we mean by the anger of the Lord. Okay, because we can get pretty mixed up, I think, in our heads about anger and being mad and all those things. So we need to think about this. Sin and rebellion are not good, they're not right, and they're not holy. Okay. With that in mind, think about this the people had gotten themselves immersed in or engulfed in sin, and that it seems what provokes God to respond in anger. Now, please understand this about when we say God gets angry, what we mean is God sees something that's not good, not right, not holy, and he moves to correct that. When we say God is angry, it's not that God just sits there and he's fuming like smoke coming out of his ears. You know, when we think about anger, sometimes we think people just get mad, and some people get mad and they just stay mad. I did an internship a number of years ago, a summer internship, a long time ago. I won't tell you how long because it's that long ago. What I will tell you is my boss got angry in mid May. He was still angry about that same thing at the end of August when my internship ended. That's how we can do anger, which is wrong and sinful. When God gets angry, please understand, God's angry because it's not good, not right, not holy, and he says, this is wrong, I'm going to move to correct it. That's his anger. His anger is really for our good to correct the problem. That's huge for us to understand. Now in the case, in here in Judges 3, God's anger moved him to act, and his action was to bring double wicked to town. I can pronounce double wicked. That's what the king's name means. Kushan Rishfayim means double wicked. Lovely reputation. But that's who he is. Now, not only that, not only is that what his name means, he's double wicked. He is also coming from the area of Mesopotamia, which would have been basically modern-day Iran and Iraq. So he traveled what's known as the Fertile Crescent from Iran and Iraq down to Israel. Probably an eight to 900 mile march. So someone showing up from that distance to come tells you this isn't just some kind of king. No, this is a guy that's at a level where he can travel like that, which means he is a world-class emperor. He is the big dude in town. He carries a big stick and it's double wicked. And you ask yourself, why would God do that to his kingdom of priests? Why would he bring double wicked to deal with them? Well, I think the quick answer would be because God knew that was needed to bring the conviction necessary so they would see their need. They didn't see it. They needed help. Folks, we need to understand that discomfort may very well be the gift of God's grace to help us see our issue, to help us see our need. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know, they were living in rebellion and they were continuing to live that way. They needed help to see their need, to realize what was actually going on. And God said, I will make that possible. I'm going to move by my grace, God would say, to bring them to the place where they could get the correction started. They didn't see it. They needed help, so God moved. And as verse 9 starts out, they cried out. I don't know necessarily, it's not clear that that was a true sense of repentance, but at least it was a place of them recognizing, we have a huge need. And so they cry out. They turn to God. Folks, please understand this truth about God through this part of the narrative. God can correct rebellion. They were living in rebellion. They didn't realize it. God moved to bring them to the place of starting to correct the rebellion of them seeing it. And part of the application of that simply, I think, needs to be if you and I are experiencing pain and discomfort in our lives, it might be well worth us asking the question, has God brought that pain and discomfort into our lives to help us see a need that we need addressed? Now, folks, I am not saying that every pain, by any stretch, I am not saying every pain in your life is because there's a rebellion but I am saying you and I probably need to look in the mirror and ask God the question, God, is this pain in my life because of rebellion? Because folks, God wants to correct rebellion. He doesn't point it out to say, look at you, you're bad. No, he points it out because he wants to correct it. See, truth number one is God can correct rebellion. Truth number two about God in terms of what God can do is this. God's deliverance is big. See, God creates or God doesn't create rebellion. God points out a rebellion. God corrects a rebellion so he can bring deliverance into your life. That's where things continue to go. I mean, based on the pattern of the book of Judges, and we're going to see this again and again, when the people finally get to the place where they see their need and they cry out to God... God provides. Okay, verses 9, 10, and 11 kind of take us there. God provided a deliverer. Othniel was empowered by the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit moved in Othniel's life and moved in such a way that through him, God brought victory and rest. God moved, God brought deliverance. Okay, even though Israel was facing a world-class emperor, a guy known for being doubly wicked, God brought victory there. Please hear this. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. God can and does solve little problems. But God also can move in dramatic ways to solve big problems. I don't know what all the problems represented in the room are what folks online are facing. What I do know is this. This story is telling us there is no problem you are facing that is beyond God's ability to bring deliverance. There's no problem you and I are facing that is beyond God's ability to bring deliverance. Let's back up and ask the question again. What does or what can God do Well, let me answer that question by trying to take those two truths and apply them into our lives. Here's one attempt. God can move through our failures and rescue us so that we can be people who can be useful in his mission. Maybe a more compact way to say that is God can move through our failures and make us deliverers. We become agents of his deliverance. God moves through our failures, and he can make us agents of deliverance. That's a part of what's really happening here. That's how we need to hear this story. That's how we apply this story. Now, you can hear that, and you might say, well, that raises questions. So let's hit the pause button for a second. Maybe you're wondering, okay, Othniel was, yeah, he was a deliverer. I mean, we first met Othniel back in Judges 1, and And in Judges 1, I mean, he's sort of this bright spot in a bleak chapter that's not really good, but he's a bright spot. He seems to be a hero. And if you kind of read some commentators or you look at a study Bible, you might see that his name means force of God. I mean, that sounds pretty impressive, right? I mean, why wouldn't he be the one? Like, he's the force of God to maybe translate that into... Iowa political season. We've had the state fair and so the primary stuff gets going on and on, or the caucus actually, I guess I've got to get my terms right. And we're always looking at candidates to say, do they look presidential? Well, I mean, if your name is Force of God, you're probably looked the part where I'll go like, yeah, he's gonna be, yeah, he's gonna be a deliverer, but what about me? 20 years ago, Carrie and I had some friends that moved to China. And they, I don't even remember exactly why, but they, they wanted to talk to me about what my name, Woo, Lloyd, would be in, China, in Mandarin. And, and the two characters that make up my name in Mandarin mean special radish. <laughs> there they are think force of God special radish <laughs> I'll be honest I, I don't I cannot blame my name in Mandarin but you know what I've struggled with wondering can I really be somebody that God can use because I'm a special radish And I don't even like radishes, (laughs) which means I don't like myself, so we got all kinds of issues. Let's move, yeah. Let's get back to the notes. Folks, there's a chance, maybe a pretty good chance, that you doubt for any number of reasons that you could be useful to God. You're not enough, Neil. You're not the force of God. Although technically when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, yes, you are. But we struggle with that. So I want you to unhit the pause button with me. We're going to look at two more judges. We're going to kind of transition from what God can do to who are the people God uses. So let's jump in and talk about Ehud. He's the first one. He's going to get a lot of verses, a lot of verses to him. So let's jump in and read some of those. Verse 12 to 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now, this is really sad, isn't it? I mean, the people stumbled in. They had 40 great years, 40 good years. And all of a sudden, now they're spiritually drifting again. Which means, I think, folks, again, we need to ask ourselves the question are we forgetting God? We need to, because they did so. We're probably not at a better level than them. We need to understand that. And here's the thing. These people were slow on the uptake of what was going on. It took them 18 years to respond to God's corrective action. Verse 15, the story continues. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now again, they were slow. took them 18 years. They finally cry out, and God brings the deliverer. Now the deliverer he brings probably was not somebody who was on the short list of people you'd expect to be the deliverer. Says Ehud. Now, it says he's a, from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, something to understand. The tribe of Benjamin. The word Benjamin means son of my right hand. And Notice it says that Ehud is left-handed. Now, that's kind of weird, but what's even weirder is the literal reading of verse 15 is restricted in the right hand. So Ehud is part of this tribe that's son of my right hand which was meant to be a symbol of strength probably was handicapped or disabled in some way his right hand was not functional that's why he had to use his left hand he was weak again he would not have been on the list of people like hey who's going to lead us to deliverance it wouldn't have been Ehud he wouldn't have been somebody that would rally the people around him, but God used Ehud, God used weak Ehud to bring deliverance. Read with me a bigger chunk, verse 16 down to verse 23, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges a cubit in length, and he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And he who came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and he had said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And he who had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right th- thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull out the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. I said this was a gross book, didn't I? I did preface that the first week, okay? It's gross. Verse 23. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of his roof chamber behind him and locked them. Okay, now we could spend a lot of time unpacking all of the details of that unique thing and all of the grossness of it. We could. That would make this series a whole lot longer than it is already So I'm not going to do that. But what I want you to realize is not only was there growth stuff, but there's also some satire going on here. There's some things being played with here. You see, Eglon, it says he's a very fat man. Now, if you think of the sacrificial system of Israel, the fattened calf would have been seen as the choice, the valuable one, the one that you'd want to sacrifice. That's the one would be held up in a sense with honor. It was one of value, okay? Value. story's going to continue. We're going to skip a couple of verses because it's just people being really confusing, going, well, what's he doing? Why hasn't he come out? So let's jump down to verse 26 to 30. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed about that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, notice this, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Here's another part of the satire. Ehud was not able-bodied. He was weak. He was weak, and yet God used weak Ehud to deal with the strong bodied, valuable, fattened calf and his whole army. God can use weak people. Don't get distracted by all the grossness, okay? Hear the point. God can use weak people. Second image, second one we need to see is shamgar. Now, Shamgar's going to get another verse in Judges 5. In in Judges 3, he gets one verse. Okay? So Judges 3, 31. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anoth, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goat. And he also saved Israel. So he's another deliverer. Now, again, he's not probably, Shamgar would not be on the list of people you'd say, hey, he's going to be our deliverer. He's the one we're looking to. Why do I say that? Well, because the name Shamgar is not actually a Hebrew name. You say, but he saved Israel. Yeah, but he doesn't really have a Hebrew name. And that really shouldn't be a surprise to us that he doesn't have a Hebrew name because he's the son of someone called Anath. Now, I realize most of you probably didn't wake up this morning and review your Canaanite gods. But Anath is the Canaanite goddess of sex and war. That's who he's, that's his parent. That's who he's that, you know, like that's his pedigree. Not exactly the person you and I would be saying, hey, you know, um, we're gonna do this Netflix, we got some money, we're gonna make a show for Netflix or Amazon Prime, and we need to cast somebody for the role of deliverer. Shamgar's not gonna be the one you're gonna go after. He's not on that list because, I mean, look at his pedigree. It really isn't very good. And not only is his pedigree not very good, but, you know, like, we want our heroes to be prominent and powerful and wealthy. Shamgar's probably a very poor guy. See, the tool he used, the ox geld, the people that use ox geld, you're peasant farmers, an ox goat would be a, a piece of wood, and at one end you'd have some metal on it so you could kind of get the ox's attention, and on the other end would be kind of a blade shovel kind of thing so you could clean out the plow. This wasn't a huge military leader. This was a guy that was on the farm that did the gross, grungy work. He wasn't somebody everyone would say, wow, he'd be somebody you wouldn't notice. He'd be somebody you'd forget. He'd be somebody who was weak and came from a family that obviously didn't know God. He could never be anything. Folks, it'd be very possible for us to feel weak or very possible for us to think that our failures relegate us to the bench or maybe we don't even get to dress for the game. We're not going to be useful to God because we've got all these issues, but when we read the story in Judges 3, that doesn't seem to be the case. God can work and move through us. Please understand again, God can move through our failures, through our weaknesses, and make us deliverers. You know, Central as a church is almost 150 years old. In January, it will be 150. For 150 years, we have believed that God inspired his word to do a work in our lives through his word. So what do we need to, in essence, grab hold of from these narrative accounts so that work could increase, so that we really do see that God can work through our failures and make us deliverers? What, what do we need to take home? Let me suggest to you three takeaways. First, God is committed to our freedom. Part of what keeps setting up Judges and sets up Judges 3 is the fact that people wandered away from God. They failed. That's why they kept needing deliverers, because they kept failing. They kept walking away from God. But even though they walked away from God, they went off, so to speak. God was committed to their freedom. God was committed to correcting the problem. Because of who God is, even when we fail, even when Israel failed, he had the grace to provide them with deliverers. A truth you and I need to get it clear in our lives is, guess what? God wants you to know freedom. And the judges that we're going to look at in the book of Judges, the deliverers really, aren't the end of the story. In essence, they point us to the greater deliverer. They point us to the ultimate deliverer, to the Lord Jesus. See, Jesus came to earth, and he went to the cross, and he died in our place for our sins, and he rose again. Why? Because God wants you to be free. And the only way to be free is for our sin to be dealt with, and God to offer us his freedom. And that's exactly what God wants to do. And I want to ask this morning, have you, have you responded to God's gift of freedom and the way you respond to God of, God's gift of freedom is you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus alone as your Savior and he brings literally his freedom into your life. Have you done that? Have you trusted Christ? If you haven't, we would love this morning to be able to help you walk through whatever it is that might keep you from that. Yes, you are a failure. Not trying to be me. I am too. But God invites us to freedom. He's committed to our freedom. Which means maybe another thing coming out of Takeaway One would be this. Maybe you need to ask the question, maybe you need to ask people in your life the question hey, do you see things in my life where maybe I'm not embracing the freedom I'm given in Christ? where maybe I'm pushing aside God's freedom and going back to failure. We need freedom. Please get it. God is committed to your freedom, to my freedom. Takeaway number two, God's not limited by our limitations. God's not limited by the stuff that limit us. You know, I really wish it was not the case, but I think we're really good at making excuses. And we figure our excuses then give us a pass for serving God or being useful in God's mission. I, I can't do that. You know, Ehud and Shamgar could have said that. They could have made excuses, but they didn't. Please understand, your ability or your perception of your ability is not nearly as important as your availability. See, we think it's on us and our ability and our whatever. It's not. God has a mission. And if you are a follower of Jesus, God says you have a part in his mission, even if you're limited, even if you're weak, even if you have failures. See, part of applying Judges 3 to our lives means really asking, are you and I going to be available to God in our weaknesses? Maybe another way to say that is to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and ask the question, is God's grace sufficient for me and my weaknesses? Takeaway number three. Take a step and rejoice in what God does. See, if our limitations aren't the issue then we really need to take a step in terms of the mission of God. Because if I've trusted Christ, then that means God has a role for me, God has in essence given me the freedom to serve. So I wanna ask, are you serving in the mission of God and are you delighting in what God is doing in and through you as you serve? Are you rejoicing, God, you're using me and this is wonderful. You know, Judges is going to show us a lot of ugly stuff. But through that ugly, the Judges has, God still works. God takes failures and turns them into deliverers. That's really why we want all of us to be involved in making disciples. See, as we help each other connect to Jesus and we help each other be equipped by Jesus and help each other be sent by Jesus, we're becoming disciples. In essence, when you're being discipled, what's really happening is God is working and moving in your life, taking you from sin and failure to turn you into someone he sends to be an agent of his deliverance. God takes us from failures and turns us into deliverers. We need to learn from Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar that God takes us from failure and turns us into deliverers for his mission. Can God use you? Yes. Yes. Yes, he can. He can take any failure and turn that person into a deliverer. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you this morning. And I pray and ask that you would use the words in Judges 3 to move in our souls for our good That we'd embrace the freedom we're offered, And we would live in freedom. Sharing that freedom as deliverers for your glory. Thank you for the chance to look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to prepare to share in communion... As looking through the message and thinking about communion, I thought of these words in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, when it says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I thought about that idea of, you know, our failures, God taking our failures and turning us into livers. And I thought... Communion actually connects with that. I mean, we're about to, in taking part in this simple meal, is we're proclaiming the Lord's death. And why did the Lord die? Why did Jesus die? Well, he died because of our sin, because of our failures. He also died because of his love. In a very unique way, that simply reminded me that, yes, I fail but God's committed to my freedom. God wants me to be redeemed and know true life through him. And then the verse says, we proclaim his death until he comes. Well, if we're proclaiming his death until he comes, we're we're telling people the gospel. We're proclaiming, we're becoming agents of his deliverance the deliverance of freedom that he alone offers. In this simple meal that we're sharing in this morning, we're proclaiming to ourselves gospel truth, that we're sinners who need a deliverer, and God is that deliverer through Jesus. And we're also getting ready, in essence, to send ourselves to engage in gospel mission, to proclaim his death until he comes. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, I want to invite you to share in this meal and just consider the truth of the gospel and the mission of the gospel. That God takes failures and turns them into deliverers. If you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus yet, I'm going to ask you because the Bible asks for you to not participate. But I do want you to consider this. Failure does not have to be the end when there's a deliverer. And he is inviting you today into his deliverance. And we would love for you to receive the deliverance that's found in Jesus. Would you pray with me as we share? Father, thank you for the hope alone that you offer us in the Lord Jesus. We come to this table not as perfect people, but as people in need of a Savior. We have sinned, we have failed, we have fallen short. And yet you offer us deliverance out of your love. Father, I pray that's a message that we would proclaim in a sense to ourselves in taking this meal. A message you want proclaimed proclaim to us. And then a message you invite us to go and proclaim. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for your love and your transforming work in our lives. May we rejoice in what you do for us. In the precious name of the Savior we pray. Amen.